The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a more or less family-friendly celebration of all that is geeky. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and along with my daughter Ella, we are two generations of geek. This is episode 48, The Doctor is the Monster, part one of my interview with urban fantasy author Melissa F. Olson. In this episode, we'll be discussing the Mary Shelley classic Frankenstein, recently released in a new annotated edition by Leslie S. Klinger. But before we dive into that, a couple program notes. First, Ella couldn't be here for this interview as she was busy at college. She'll join me at the end of the episode to chat about a few things, including our spoiler-filled mini-review of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Second, this episode brings our fourth season to a close. Our seasons are 12 episodes each, even when we get way behind schedule, so we've actually been doing this for six years now. Time has flown, and we look forward to doing many more shows in the future. Lastly, remember you can find us online at generationsgeek.com, which includes handy links to all our episodes. Plus, check out the Generations Geek Instagram, featuring Ella's geeky adventures. Now, on with the show. Melissa F. Olson, welcome to Generations Geek. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this because you are a fan of a couple of things that I'm a huge fan of, which is... Uh, both vampires and uh, Frankenstein's monster. That's absolutely right. I and and I love that you called it Frankenstein's monster because, it, you know, people say they're. I, I'm. I guess I would describe myself more as a fan of Frankenstein the book or mm-hmm. a fan of Mary Shelley, but um, I'm definitely not a fan of Victor Frankenstein. Who's, <laughs> you know, he's kind of a jerk. He's not a great a great role model for. Literally anyone. <laughs> no. Whereas I, I honestly have much more sympathy for the monster in that book than I do for for idiotic Victor. Well, it's the classic monster story for me. The the monster is always the sympathetic character, whether it's uh, the creature or you know, I mean, you know, Frankenstein's creature or the creature from the Black Lagoon or King Kong. They are all these characters that. At first glance, they're the, the the bad guy, but it becomes clear that that they're not at all. That they're the good guy, and it's the people that are the bad guys, Victor yeah. or, or whoever. It's not the case with Dracula, really. In at least in the original version, that you know he is the bad guy. But uh, a lot of the other classic Universal monster movies, there's always a sympathetic angle to the monster that they've been wronged in some way. It's funny you mention that because I actually have, I had a conversation um, about this recently with a friend of mine who um, was a screenwriter for one of the uh, more recent um, Friday the 13th movies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were talking about the slasher uh, genre and he has so much sympathy for, for um, Jason Voorhees. Mm-hmm. Uh, who the you know the hockey mask yep. machete wielding killer of camp counselors, and and you know this was it was one of those things where I kind of teased him gently about it, and he came back at me with just full seriousness because to him like 
he has he has just done so much research and he has so much sympathy for this character and what he went through that turned him into the monster that, you know, he's, I wouldn't say willing to forgive all the murder, but, you know, he sees past it. And so we kind of had a fun conversation about that, especially contrasting him to like Freddie, who is, you know, yeah. really not has, there's nothing sympathetic about him. No. I mean, he was wronged in life, but he was a child molester. He was a bad guy before he was killed. So, you know, these, these slasher movies are, they they kind of echo these older monster stories that that we're very familiar with, but it's so rarely kind of equated because yeah. they seem like such different, you know, the kind of classic Victorian monsters versus teen slasher movies from the eighties. Yeah. Well, I think you could the the way that your friend described it, you can draw a line between Jason Voorhees and Frankenstein's monster because they both do horrible things and kill innocent people, but. <laughs> They have been horribly wronged and uh, driven to a, a kind of uh, a madness by it. And so you sympathize with their plight, even though you don't agree with how they're dealing with their anger, <laughs> shall <Yes>. we say. <laughs> no, and I, I think it kind of goes back to a discussion that comes up in any conversation about um, Dracula and the creature is what I always call Frankenstein's monster, yeah. because that's what he's most often referred to. Um you know, they, the, it's kind of the conversation about born versus made where, mm. um, you know, it, at, at the beginning of, you could go back far enough and you can argue that Dracula was made into a vampire at some point, but he is so established as himself that, you know, just as a vampire, he is a monster. It has nothing to do with anything he does or does not do. Like he yeah. simply is, which you can compare to, you know, uh, Freddy or Michael Myers or Jaws, you know, they simply are, they, they exist to be monsters. They are monsters. They don't have that sort of sympathetic underpinning where then you have these made monsters who were, who were made into what they are. And because of those circumstances, you know, they, they have so much more sympathy. So I always find the, the made versus born conversation really interesting. And, um, especially in terms of the creature. You know, one of my favorite things about Mary Shelley, and I should say one of the most infuriating things, is that she provides no easy answers ever. Like, she is unwilling to hand you sympathy, like a character who's purely sympathetic or a character who's purely evil. I mean, even Victor, who I am just not a fan of, and <laughs> any, any, you know, sort of feminist reading of Victor, he will not come out well. But when you read the book and he, where he talks about his childhood and you really see how his parents kind of turned him into what he is because they, you know, they, they treated him like a, like a little prince who could do no wrong. And they literally gave him a gift of a person, yeah. a human person. Yeah. They found this really pretty toddler who uh, was too pretty to be living with the peasants that she was living with. <laughs> yeah. And they thought, obviously this child, this white blonde child is too pretty to be living with these peasants. So we should take her and give her to get Victor as a gift. And so his first meeting of his foster sister, who they call his cousin. So it'll be less icky later when they get married. But his first meeting with her is, you know, Victor, I have a present for you. And so what, I mean, just that simple line, you know, that, where he thinks of Elizabeth as his present 
and the way that his parents kind of just instilled this this entitlement into him you know it's so easy to it's so difficult to completely hate him because you do see the these sources you know the these reasons um and i love that i that i admire that so much about mary shelley because it would have been so much easier to write Victor as the sympathetic hero and the creature as the monster he accidentally creates, who is nothing but evil, you know, and she avoids that very easy yeah. reading that would have been so easy to fall into. And I think that's a huge part of Frankenstein's lasting sort of popularity. I'm going to back up a second. When did you first read Frankenstein? When did it grab you? You know, I read it. In college, uh, I, I double majored in um, cinema television, which is a, which is actually just one major, but it's got a hyphen. I double majored <laughs> in that and English literature. And honestly, at the time, the English literature part was a lark. I did it on a whim. Um, I thought I would minor in English lit just for fun. And then I counted up my credits and I was an overachiever um, academically. And I thought, eh. I'll just double major. It'll be fine. Um, so I read it, but I read it in just a blur of work in college. Mm-hmm. And it didn't really impact me. Um, then many years later, I uh, was teaching community college here in Madison. Um, I, I, I did that briefly. And I did a syllabus about the intersection of science and technology and horror. Um, what was kind of my, my syllabus. And I decided to put Frankenstein on it. And, you know, when you're the teacher, you really need to know the work. <laughs> so that was when I first dug into the book and the circumstances surrounding the book and the history. And, you know, I really, that was when it grabbed me. It didn't actually grab me the first time I read it because to me then it was just, you know, an assignment among many assignments. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I was taking so many English classes that I I was reading reading for school about a book or even two books a week. So it just didn't, you know, it didn't really sink into me until I started to study it when I was trying to pull out these themes for my class. And and that was when I really fell in love with the work and um, started to just have so much curiosity about Mary Shelley and who she was. And she is just a fascinating figure that I don't think you know, there's a new movie out about her, and I'm hoping that will kind of boost her prominence, even if I'm not totally sure that the movie is going to be any good. Her biography is just amazing and fascinating. And uh, that was one thing I really enjoyed about reading the new annotated edition uh, by Leslie S. Klinger, that there's a lot of those things brought in. And I, I, and I was familiar with a lot of that background, but it's nice to read it in parallel with the novel. And uh, the other thing that's fascinating about it, as as you certainly know, uh, I'm going to lay this out there for the listeners, is the textual history behind the novel. Because it was first published in 1818, anonymously, because, you know, why should a woman get her name on a book, apparently? Right, right. And then there was a new edition in 1823 that had uh, that incorporated a number of changes into it, uh, apparently not entirely with Mary's uh, oversight. Uh, and then there is 
a uh, second edition in 1831, and that includes the changes from the 1823 edition, plus additional changes. But then, very interestingly, there's also an addition, a markup that Mary did of the 1818 text, apparently independently of the 1823 edition, so it's got different notes in it than what are in the 1823 printing and the 1831 printing. And then there's also a substantial portion of a, uh, ma a handwritten manuscript available that you can see in Mary's hand, plus with Percy's no notes and edits. So you have all these things to draw upon. And uh, the new annotated Frankenstein was the first one that kind of brought all those together, that you get notes on the substantive changes mm -hmm. between all of these texts. And it's fascinating on many levels. It's to see the changes that she made apparently because after many, many years she felt she had progressed as a writer and so she was trying to polish some things up. But also for a writer to read this book and see the changes being made, it's it's amazing. Well, and I'll tell you too, because I I had to approach this from the perspective of a teacher and it is a pain in the bottom to decide which text to teach. Yeah. Because unless your class is, you know, unless you have enough time to really focus and read more than one version, which I don't think very many teachers have, you know, a, an opportunity to do, I had to decide which one, you know, which which one am I going to present as the definitive text? And it's a very awkward thing to have to decide. Um, I think many professors choose the 1818 text, but, um, you know, I, I honestly understand the impulse to do anything else. I taught the 1818 text. My personal favorite, though, is the original first draft, um, mm -hmm. which is now available. I have it somewhere in my office. Um, yep. But I, I love that one because that's where you see Mary and not Shelley. Um, because Shelley, Shelley came at, Shelley edited the first draft because Mary asked him to, she was very, um, I don't think insecure is the right word, but she knew that she was a beginning writer. She was surrounded by, you know, these men that she thought of as great writers, um, uh, Shelley and also Lord Byron. And she really thought she needed his assistance. And, but po Percy was a poet and he comes at the text and he adds so much flowery language yeah. and these elaborate flourishes that now modern audiences find very off-putting. You know, maybe yeah. it, I, I, I can't, to be fair, I don't know how the, how his edits were received at the time. But when you look at Mary's first draft now, like it is so much more readable than Percy's. Um, or then, then the book became after Percy's interference. Yes, I, I definitely prefer the earliest version. It's rough around the edges because it's her first work, really. Inexperience, yeah. But, but there's a charm to it that gets mm -hmm. lost in the polishing, and I would argue even in her own polishing in the 1831 edition, takes some of the charm away. But, yeah. I mean, obviously she's the author. She made that decision, but part of me would want to sit her down and say, Mary, Mary, Mary. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you there knew. are so many reasons why I would love to sit Mary Shelley down, yeah. honestly. Um, 
but no, I know exactly what you mean. And it's, it's interesting too, because it's something that you just wouldn't see in today's publishing climate, an author doing four different drafts of the same book um, and having them all come out and be published. Uh, the the closest I can think of would be when E.L. James did the her Fifty Shades books and oh, yeah. she self-published them. Yeah. And then when they became when they were purchased by a publisher, they really went through an elaborate polishing or so I'm told. I never read any drafts of them. Um, but but that's a very different kind of thing than than what happened here. I mean, this yeah. was Mary Shelley publishing all these different versions and each one at the time was the new definitive version so it's it's fascinating and very confusing yes uh, oh one thing yeah. that needs always to be stated outright and and actually this comes up in the preview for the uh the new film is mary shelley wrote frankenstein i mean every once in a while you will still find people that will kind of say oh. well, percy you know blah, blah and it's like if you've spent even the most minimal amount of time looking into it it's yeah. obvious that Mary wrote it. And yes, Percy edited and, you know, whatever. But it's Mary's story. She wrote it. You know, one of the things that I've found really interesting in my research is the whole nature of scholarship around this book. Because it was not really celebrated for Mary until, like, as late as the 1960s and 70s. Like. Yeah. You know, for for so many years, everyone assumed that it was basically Percy's book. But then even once, you know, they were convinced that Mary was the true author, it was never celebrated as like a feminist work, you know, or or um, or it wasn't really celebrated much at all or taught much at all until very late in its existence, relatively speaking. You know, it's it's not like. Many books that are, you know, they come out and they're sort of instant classics. It took yeah. a long time for the book to get the respect that it it now rightfully has. Um, and there have been really some great essays um, by feminists looking at sort of this scholarship and why it took so long for this book to be taught at colleges. And it's, yeah, the whole story is just, it's so interesting and so messed up. I have... And what's crazy is how many books there are about it. Um, I have yeah. one right here, but this is, I, I probably have six or seven books about Frankenstein, about the book at this point um, and the character, because they just keep coming out. I picked up a new one at a bookstore a couple weeks ago because it, it just continues to be, you know, people study it and then they study the way we study it. And then they study the way that we represent it on film. And then they study the way we, how we studied the way they represent it on film. And with it being the book's 200th anniversary um, this year, I think that it's, you know, all these things are kind of coming up fresh again. Yeah. And I, I love that, but I just wish there would be more focus on Mary and, and less focus on, I don't know, the, the sort of, monstrous machine that the whole thing has mm -hmm. become with all these working parts. Have you read her other sci-fi uh, novel, The The Last Man? I have not. I've owned it forever. I mean, once I started really going crazy into Frankenstein and buying, now with Klinger's new annotated Frankenstein, I think it's the fourth or fifth annotated version I have <laughs> of yep. the novel. And, you know, I have some of, some of the collections of, like, essays and stuff on it, mm -hmm. and, which I actually haven't read 
um, because I tend to just reread the novel instead of reading the study material. But sure. Um, so at some point I picked up her other sci-fi novel and I just haven't gotten to it and it's horrible. I really need to read it because then by then she's written so much more. She's a more uh, experienced writer. And so it'll be interesting to compare how she handles the story in that compared to the uh, rougher bit of uh, storytelling that's in the original Frankenstein manuscript. Of course, there are elements to the original manuscript that don't necessarily land well to a contemporary audience because they're they're just it's the uh, the standards of the time. Uh, the use of coincidence uh, was mm. uh, you know no one batted an eye at that back right. in the day. So you can get scenes like in uh, Frankenstein where the creature you know like wanders all the way across Europe and then bumps into William. <laughs> right <laughs> by chance well, in the woods and you know it's like you, you really wouldn't try to get away with something like that in a contemporary novel but if you look you know when you look at novels of the um, 18th and 19th century well that was yeah. just a form of storytelling they're, they're just loaded with coincidences uh Dickens yeah. and such well even like agatha christie some of her stuff relies so heavily on somebody just like i i recently read um and then there were none Mm-hmm. And there's so much of that where, you know, the it, it just happens to – there's a lot of it just happened to work <laughs> yeah. out that way. Um, and I think because she had such a prolific career and she was – she invented many of the of the sort of methods and skills and tropes that now all mystery writers use that we, we kind of give her a pass on that. Yeah. Um, but Mary doesn't get a pass on much. Yeah. I'm actually afraid to read her other books because I know that after Percy died, she really needed to make a living as a writer. And so she took all kinds of writing jobs. Um, and it was very commercial writing for the time. And I, I'm a little worried, honestly, I'm scared to read the book because I'm scared. It's good. The books, I should say, she wrote a a few of them, but I'm afraid it's going to affect my opinion of her because Frankenstein is so raw and it's, it's so much of her. I mean, it, it's, it's that classic new writer thing where you've got nothing to lose, you know? So you, you're, you're starving, you're, you don't have any money, you are miserable in so many ways, but from a actual publishing perspective, there's nothing to lose. Um, you can take these great risks where later when she really had to focus on commercial writing in order to feed her son. Um, and she did a lot of editing as well. Like I I'm just, I'm scared to, to read them. Yeah. I don't know. I'm going to go back to the beginning of the book a little bit and just make a couple comments about structure and how much I love this book. It's got this great nestled storytelling which is rarely used in films because it's not particularly filmic way to tell mm. a story. It's uh, an epistolary kind of novel. Right. And so we start out with these letters from Captain Walton where he's yep. telling his story in first person. And then it gets to a point where he comes across Victor who is sledding across the ice chasing the creature and so then he takes Victor aboard, and then we get Victor's first-person story to Walton. And then that goes to the various points in the story where Victor encounters the creature, and the creature tells Victor 
his first person story. And it's, oh, it's so great. And I wish that there were more, I mean, you can find these sorts of things now, but it's, it's a form that has kind of fallen out of favor. Dracula is is also an epistolary thing, but it's from right. multiple viewpoints, and it doesn't have the same nestled uh, storytelling as Frankenstein. But in Frankenstein, it's so effective, and it opens up this possibility of this weird kind of meta thing to it, because mm. everything you're getting sort of theoretically, and, and Leslie Klinger had some fun with this in his annotations, uh, all the stories you're hearing... The only one you're getting directly, sort of, is Captain Walton. Right. And and everything else, you're getting what he wrote down of what he was told by Victor. And then when Victor's telling the creature story, well, that's the creature's story filtered through Victor. It seems to be that, for the most part, uh, all these uh, narrators tried to tell the truth, but it allows... Or did they? Or did they, exactly. It allows the reader to say, hmm... There's, well, we, yeah, do we no, really I, know what the creature said to Victor? Did Victor really tell it honestly to Walton? And did Walton accurately write it down in his letters home while he was this, on his, yeah. you know, it's, oh, it's so this good. This is one of the, one of the things that I, I love about her writing because she really writes the ultimate unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you can just tell, I, I, I think the psychology of her characters, I know she borrowed a lot of Shelley, uh, Percy Shelley for um, Victor Frankenstein. Um, and the way that he talks, I mean, the, the people who have sort of, the historians who have studied the relationship between Mary and, and Shelley now, you know, they always talk about how Percy Shelley grew up. He was the only boy in a huge house full of sisters and one of the more recent books, it's around here somewhere, um, that I read about about them and their relationship and the their relationship with Lord Byron, you know, they talked about how he's kind of spent his whole the whole rest of his life in search for another harem. And I believe Klinger what Klinger might have even referenced that in in the annotated version. That, you know, he was he grew up adored by sisters and sort of fawned over and petted and loved. And so he spent his whole life kind of just looking for that same situation again, where, you know, and, and you can trace a lot of his activities with cheating on Mary, but also with, you know, having her, her cousin or stepsister Claire live with them, you know, and, and, and eventually having a sexual relationship with her too. Like it, it's just all, it's also clear. So you, you really get a real sense of who Percy is by the the historians who have studied him. And then you when you read Victor Frankenstein with Percy in mind, and Mary herself said that he was a a major influence on the character, I just he's like that spoiled wheedling little boy who tells <laughs> more or less the truth, but it's always slanted in his favor. Mm-hmm. You know? It like this happened, but here's why it's not my fault. Oh, um, let me and I <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. I just want to jump in here with the one of the examples of Victor that just renders me nearly speechless. He uh, so the creature kills William and plants evidence on Justine, who's like a family friend or servant girl or something. And Both. so so Justine gets wrongfully convicted and executed 
for the murder of William. And oh. Victor watches the whole thing and feels that, that there's nothing he can do because no one would believe him if he tried to tell them that there was this creature that he reanimated that was actually responsible for the killing. And so after Justine is executed, Victor actually thinks that it's worse for him because at least Justine got to go to yeah. you know peaceful heaven, but he's left on earth to, uh, you know, in his torture of guilt or whatever he's feeling and it is the most infuriating yes <laughs> self-centered that thing that's uh well first first he's convinced that she won't be convicted so he doesn't come forward and say um so i invented this creature who kills people because he's <laughs> he's certain that like the court won't convict her right and then he's certain that elizabeth uh, his future wife will be able to persuade them that Justine is innocent. So he doesn't come forward because, you know, why risk myself when she's yeah. never going to be convicted? And then she is convicted. And his response is he literally goes to the jail cell with Elizabeth that night to comfort Justine, knowing that at any point he could have, you know, put a stop to this or even given Justine the small comfort of explaining what happened before she's killed. And it's all so skillfully deferred. You know, the yeah. blame is uh, that you just, uh, Percy is, is definitely an influence. Um, but I, I just, the way that Victor is written, he is, you just, you know him, you know, guys like this, you know, it's the guy who, who won't take no for an answer because he's assumes that every woman wants him on some level. You know, it's that same kind of just entitled thinking that that is just as relevant now as when it yeah. actually happened to Mary. And the strange thing about the novel, as far as those autobiographical references, is that on the one hand, Mary seems to be having this insight into this character. Mm -hmm. And yet you would almost have expected her to be more to be for Mary in her life to be more outgoing about these sort of things like following in her mother's footsteps, but she didn't as much. I absolutely agree. And I think it's because Victor or, uh, excuse me, Percy died so young, you know, there's actually been a few different, um, historians and, uh, literary critics who have looked at what the things that Mary said about Percy before and after his death. Mm -hmm. And before his death, she was actually much more willing to discuss his flaws and faults, of which there were many. Whereas after his death, you know, she was still a very young woman when he died. Yeah. And and he had been her whole world. I mean, she spent like six years with him. And most of the time she was pregnant. And uh, she just was so he was her first love. She was so head over heels for him. And. I think that had he lived longer, she would have eventually become disillusioned, but mm -hmm. she didn't get that opportunity. Yeah. And so she instead devoted the rest of her life to his memory and to editing his works and publishing his poems over and over. You know, I think that much of Percy's fame as a poet is because of Mary's work to get him mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. She worked tirelessly for the rest of her life on his work, on editing it and republishing it. And she got him the fame that he eventually had. You know, I mean, I don't, I'm not suggesting that he's a terrible poet, but just she worked so hard on 
on making him famous and and promoting his memory. And I I wish I honestly wish that dude had lived longer because he is such a jerk. And <laughs> I I believe she would have figured that out eventually. Another thing that I really like about the novel is and, and it's so interesting when you compare and contrast with the films, is in the novel the creation sequence is incredibly minimal. Mm. Right. And, you know, it's like, it's just basically, it's a sentence or two. I mean, you, you right. get more details about how he's um, constructing the creature. And one thing yes. that always gets dropped out of the movies, which is incredibly, I don't know why people don't pick this up, but in the novel it's specified that he uses both human and animal parts yep. to build the body. And yep. they never go there in the movies, or maybe there's been, I mean, there's been so many Frankenstein movies, maybe there, are, maybe there is one that goes there, but I've not seen one that goes there. I haven't either. And, yeah. and that is so fascinating. But after he gets through the mechanics of actually building the body, then basically it's just like two sentences. I gathered my materials around me and, and there was a spark of life and, you know, and then that's it. <laughs> Right. And it's right. not even specified that it has the phrases used spark of life, but that's right. not necessarily literally talking about electricity. But, you know, that was what was, you know, drawn on for the uh, classic Boris Karloff version. And then since then, it's become this thing that you always have an overblown electrical sequence of bringing right. the creature right. to life. And it's not that it couldn't have been the way that the the way that he's reanimated in the book. There is a line or there is a reference earlier in the novel, you know, when Victor is discussing his sort of scientific influences, he does mention um, the work of an actual scientist who was, you know, a real person who was fascinated by, I, was it Galvani? Yes. Or yes. One of those, he actually mentions it. So yeah. It's it's possible, but the sort of takeaway is that he intentionally keeps it vague because in these letters he doesn't want anyone to be able to repeat the experiments. Yeah, you know, and and so he, and, you know, if you sort of extrapolate back, he doesn't tell Walton the secret of reanimation because, it, and it's almost a slight little noble thing that Victor Frankenstein does. Yeah, I mean, one of the main sort of themes of the novel, I guess 200 year spoiler alert, is that by the end of the book, Victor doesn't really learn much. You know, Walton has to make this decision whether to press on in the ice, risking his men who are right about on the verge of mutiny anyway, because they're so ticked off at being stuck in the ice, or turn around and go back and play it safe but then he won't have this like, you know, this discovery. He won't get to be the person yeah. who discovers things. So uh, Walton or Victor encourages him to push on through the ice. And that, you know, that's sort of symbolic of the fact that Victor didn't really learn much. Like <laughs> mm -hmm. he never Victor has every opportunity to see his life as a cautionary tale and change his ways. Like he has many chances and he never takes one of them. But the fact that he keeps. So so you could actually, it would sort of make sense if Victor decided to leave his work to the public so that someone else can do a better job. And <laughs> yeah. he doesn't do that. And that's actually this tiny, noble choice that he makes. But by sort of focusing and turning our attention to this, you know, beautiful cinematic lightning sequence, we've all sort of forgotten that. Yeah, and he, he never really accepts his 
responsibility, not just for the fact that, you know, he created the creature and then immediately abandoned it. Mm -hmm. And then, although you can't excuse the creature for his killing of all the innocent people, Victor continues to make choices throughout the story that drive the creature forward down that dark mm-hmm. path in, in very predictable ways. It's like Victor knew. There's no way that he couldn't have known that, for instance, when he went back on his word to the creature to create a bride for him, mm-hmm. you know, he knew that there would be ramifications to that. Right. Because every time that he has, you know, done something against the the creature's interests, it has come back in his face. And yet he still makes these decisions and he tells himself that he's doing it for the greater good. And and there is an, an aspect of that, especially on the uh, interesting question about whether or not a male and female creature would have been able to have little creatures. Right. right. And what compulsions they might have had but yeah he just never tries to do something that really in the immediate sense will be helpful (laughs) to anyone around him his selfishness and his ability to sort of justify for example the creature specifically says to him i'll see you on your wedding night to me that would that would i would think oh maybe i shouldn't get married, you know, or maybe I should postpone my wedding. Maybe I should tell my fiance that there's a ridiculous monster creature coming after us. But no, instead, Victor tells himself it'll be fine because that's what Victor does. Well, and and the, the, the strange interpretation he makes that, oh, the creature's going to kill me. That's what he means. Right, but he's when just cool everything, with that. Everything that has come beforehand would indicate clearly that, well, no, he's going to kill someone close to you. Right. Because no, that's what he's done denial. every time. Yeah. yeah. The the psychology of Victor is so wonderful. But, you know, this also kind of goes back to what I was saying about how Mary doesn't give us any easy answers. Because even despite all this hate, these hateful actions and this avoidance of responsibility, there are these glimmers of Victor doing the right thing. Yeah. Like like keeping the method from from Walton or like the way that he decides not to create the new, the the female um, creature as yeah. a mate for his creature because he fears that it would actually, you know, end the world, which seemed a little dramatic and arrogant of him, but whatever. <laughs> like, he does have, like, Mary doesn't give us an easy villain. Like, she, she does give him these glimmers of maybe not redemption because the guy just does not learn a lesson, but, you know, the, like, actual goodness in Victor that it almost makes him more infuriating because you can't just write him off as a jerk yeah. and move on. I mean, I can, but other <laughs> people. But if we could go back, I just wanted to mention, you've talked a bunch of times about Klinger's, Leslie Klinger's um, annotated version. And I have a story about that because I found, I learned who Leslie Klinger was um, many years ago when I was in grad school. I wrote a paper on Dracula and, mm-hmm. um, the paper was actually about Dracula 2000, the movie, oh, of which I'm a big one, fan. Yeah, I re- oh my gosh, it's hilarious! You should watch it. It's it's so funny. <laughs> but um, the and I'm I, I guess there's a spoiler for the movie in here. But I wrote a paper about how one of the sort of influences on Bram Stoker was anti-Semitism. Um, at the time that he was writing Dracula, there was this big fear of these Eastern European Jewish immigrants who were coming into Europe or Western Europe 
and um you know they were they were freaking everybody out one of the like you know people of course had horrible things to say about about these new immigrants and one of the things they said was that they drank the blood of christian children Mm. you know and Mm -hmm. they were always very pale with black hair and you know they it was a huge, it was not the only influence on, on Stoker, but it was definitely one of them. And the thing that's so interesting about Dracula 2000, and yeah, I just said there's something interesting about Dracula 2000, <laughs> is that the movie posits the theory that Dracula is actually Judas Iscariot. And the reason he can't die <laughs> is because God won't let him. Oh. I know. Um <laughs> And as crazy as that sounds, when you look at that in the context of, uh, you know, this sort of anti-Semitic influence, it's actually kind of a full circle deal because Mm -hmm. Judas is like the most hated of all Jews because he killed Jesus um, and betrayed him and everything. And so then to have Dracula be Judas, it's kind of interesting. And, you know, and they, the movie does this whole bit about how that's why he hates the Bible and that's why he doesn't like silver because of, mm-hmm. you know, the silver coins he was paid. Mm-hmm. And uh, I looked into it and as far as I could find, that movie is the, with all the many stories about Dracula, and he's famously like the second most popular character in literature after Sherlock Holmes, um, or the two of them are first and second. I don't remember which is first and which is second. But even with all of the stories about Dracula, that was the first time anybody had done Dracula as Judas, as far as I could find. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I wrote this paper, and I actually was asked to present it at um, at a conference in Florida. And so I was presenting this paper, and it was like a year after I'd written it, and I was trying to sound smart. So I was reading, doing all this, you know, Dracula research, and of course I procrastinated. So... <laughs> I had heard about this Klinger edition and I brought it with me to Florida and you, you've seen the book. This is maybe the largest book I own. Like it, it is heavy and it is enormous. And I carried that in a backpack all the way to Florida. And I sat by the pool the day before my paper presentation (laughs) reading this Dracula book, kind of trying to cram. So then many years go by. And last year I was in Hawaii for left coast crime which is, you know, a mystery writers convention. And Leslie Klinger, and I I was like the only fantasy writer there. Everybody else there was there, you know, because they write mysteries Mm -hmm. or because they write, you know, literary criticism about mysteries or whatever. And I'm like the lone, there were like a handful of people there who write urban fantasy or some genre like that. And so I got super excited because I saw that Leslie Klinger was on the program to talk about (laughs) Sherlock Holmes. And, and sort of these influences. And I'm like, I know I'm the only person that's going to do this, but I got to go up to this guy and tell him how much I love Dracula. Yeah. Um, and so I did like, you know, I went to his, like, I actually, I didn't even go to his signing. I I never do this. Like if I, if I want to meet another author, I'll go to their signing and introduce myself or maybe after a panel or something. But I literally saw this guy like walking down a hall and grabbed him. Um, okay, I don't, I don't think I physically like touched him, but I like ran over and was like, hello. Um, and I'm sure I was the only one there gushing with him about Dracula. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was just so excited. And, um, so I, I chatted with him and he was the most gracious. I mean, you always hope these 
others that you admire will be gracious. And he was so kind. He like led me over to a table and we sat down and we talked about Dracula for, you know, far longer than he ever needed to do with anyone out of politeness. (laughs) And that was when he told me, I'm working on Frankenstein right now. And I got out my phone and I pre-ordered it in, you know, on the island of Oahu and left for <laughs> five, like six months before the book came out. Um, and so that's how I found out about Frankenstein is from, you know, the man himself while he was working on it. Nice. But um, he was just such a nice guy. And he's he's always been nice to me on Twitter and everything. And I have so much respect for the work that he does because even just the small amount of research I did, you know, so that I could teach Frankenstein is an overwhelming amount of research. So the amount that he would have to do for that, that annotated version is pretty stunning. Yeah. I first heard of him, I think when the, uh, when he started doing the Sherlock Holmes things, mm-hmm. um, which I don't own yet. I'm a huge Sherlock Holmes fan as well. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to get these. This sounds so amazing. And uh, mm-hmm. I haven't picked them up yet, but then when Dracula came out, I got that, and then I hadn't really, I I wasn't paying attention. I found out that he had done Frankenstein when I saw you tweet about it one day. Yep. And then I immediately yeah, went Yeah, you're on welcome for that, by the yeah. way. I'm still waiting for my thank you <laughs> And I, uh, you know, like like you said, I just like, I immediately went on to Amazon and uh and ordered it. Um, well, I think I kind of bullied you into it too. I think it was like a Scott run, don't walk <laughs> get your copy. I was, well, I was a very aggressive perhaps, promoter. but I, it's, it's not like I needed my arm twisted to buy That's a true. new That's... annotated version of Frankenstein because, uh, I also tweeted you that picture of like my 20 copies of Frankenstein. Yeah. Like... <laughs> yes. yes. You have an impressive number of copies. I think I own more Frankenstein, like literary criticism, books of essays that I haven't finished reading. But um, you, you definitely own way more copies of Frankenstein than I ever will. Yeah, and they're yeah, they're all edited and annotated by different people. You know. Yes. And yes. well, and I think I have. I might have one or two copies that are just like the book because it's pretty. Yeah. One thing that was really striking me this time reading Klinger's annotations i found myself thinking i found myself putting on my editor cap Mm -hmm. and thinking about my dream edition of frankenstein oh and how i would i would use you know the earliest you know like mary's original text as the foundation sure and then look at all these variations from across the uh the multiple editions and pick the changes just spackle in what what you like the best from what I like the best, yeah, and and it would yeah. you know I, I wouldn't do any hands on editing beyond just choosing which version to use of a paragraph or a sentence or a word choice. I like the version of the story where they weren't cousins; they just decided they could take her because she was pretty. Um, I think that that suits Mary's themes for the book really well. Yeah, and and it's very sort of benignly dark and creepy yeah. like victor tells the story as like a rescue like they were rescuing her because she was you know pretty and and pale uh white and the yeah. and the the peasant family wasn't but uh when you read between the lines it's just such a perfect example of how the frankenstein saw the world you know yeah well i feel like we've really gone through uh frankenstein quite a bit were there any last comments you wanted to make on the novel or the annotation or Mary Shelley before we move on to anything else? 
No, I mean there are like a thousand. I could I could seriously talk about Frankenstein all day. Yeah, but that probably wouldn't be a productive use of of our time together forever because I have many many feelings. And I'm back with Ella this time. Hi. Hey. <laughs> Do you want to talk about why you've been so busy and unfortunately had to miss the interview with Melissa? Yeah, let's talk about the past uh, year and a half. Uh, <laughs> let's go through it week by week. I, I actually recorded synopses every Friday. We started this podcast uh, six years ago. Indeed. I was 14. <laughs> so now I'm 20, which for me means that I'm almost halfway through my uh, bachelor's degree in studies in cinema and media culture and a double major of history. Unrelated. It's very hard to say those two without making it sound like <laughs> I am my, it's one history studies major. It's two. I'm a high flyer. Okay. Um, <laughs> so why I'm busy specifically right now is that I'm working all day every day and um, in the in the middle of the night delivering newspapers so that I have enough money for when I am studying abroad all year next year in London at Queen Mary University. Well, that'll be a challenge for us trying to do the podcast. No, that's Six hour time difference. That's fine. We're going to be all busy <laughs> traveling places, going to uh, Sherwood Forest. We're good. Anyways, so it's been popping, which is why <laughs> um, I haven't been uh, around. But even though you've been so busy, we've worked in a very special thing just this last weekend. For the second year in a row, I was an author guest at the Star Trek original series set tour out in Ticonderoga, New York. And this is the uh, epic achievement of James Cawley, who has meticulously recreated the standing sets from the original Star Trek series, and it's, it's official through CBS. Uh, just as meticulously as he has impersonated Elvis for yes. years on end. Yes, he is a fabulous Elvis impersonator. Look him up on YouTube. You can find uh, clips of him performing. He's great. I haven't watched any videos of him because I'm already afraid of him <laughs> because he's cooler than me. I think if the fangirl part of my brain saw him actually performing as Elvis, it would be over for me. <laughs> So let's just explain for people who haven't been there. Well, before we move on, I just want to say something about James Colley. I just hope that he knows what he has done for Trekkies who are able to visit his sets because, oh my god, first of all, first of all, compilation video of every oh my god from Bob's Burgers. That's first of all. <laughs> 20 minutes of Bob saying oh my god. Um, second of all, I didn't really talk to him because, like I said, I'm terrified of him. Um, because not only did he build the sets, but his his Elvis hair game is just constantly on point, and I can't even. It's like looking into the sun. <laughs> um, and there are people who fall asleep listening to the ambient sounds of the Enterprise One Seven Zero One, and for him to have invested so much of his time and money into this endeavor um is just amazing and i hope that i hope that he knows 
And that's all. It's it's so immersive. There's the corridors. You you stroll through the corridors. You can walk into the transport room. You can walk into sick bay. You can go into Kirk's quarters. You can go. You can cry into over Spock Station like me. You can go on the bridge. You can look up a Jeffrey's tube, uh, and everything is recreated from original blueprints. Not only is each individual space uh, modeled directly off the original blueprints. But the way each of the pieces, the way they're all arranged together is the same way the standing sets were arranged on the original studio. He followed the original layout, and it's amazing. And, and it's also a work in progress. One of the reasons I was looking forward to going back again the second year, there were two reasons, actually. The first reason was... Because Ella was coming with me this time, I knew I would get to vicariously experience it for the first time again, because I would get to watch her experience it for the first time. The second reason was that I was going to be able to see everything that James and his bunch of volunteers had done. Literally volunteers. They don't get paid. And they do so much work. Um... We were able to see what has, or I was able to see what they've done since the last time. They've added the hyperbaric chamber to sick bay. They've added more of the lesser seen other half of the engineering room to that set. Uh, they've worked more on the bridge, uh, bringing it very close to a 360 degree wraparound set. Uh, last year, there was a larger gap uh, in the uh, one the, the sort of upper quadrant of it where on the original sets that was where the camera was most often placed and so that part of the set didn't appear on camera as much so he keeps tweaking it and fixing it and adding little touches he has and... not added a comfort room for me <laughs> to cry in but okay. i hope someday soon so we've given people a little sense of the physicality of it but do you want to talk about what it was like when you first stepped on the bridge. Ah, <sighs> it was so much. It took, after I realized that it, uh, it wasn't like an illusion, after my brain was like, okay, we think this is real. Like, we buy it. I just had a lot of feelings. I don't know what they were. <laughs> you were overwhelmed. There I were a lot of them all face. at the same time. Yeah. Uh, every single one, probably. You know, there's lots of layers. And it's amazing. I don't have the words. I wish I did have the words and the, the courage to tell James <laughs> Colley. Uh, but I don't. So coming soon, we'll have um, the final Alien movie. Our take on that, which I've Alien, never seen before. Alien Resurrection. Resurrection. The, the, of the, the final main alien. And then the highly anticipated finale to our alien series, um, <laughs> Alien vs. Predator. We're going to watch and talk about. And there's two of those. Yep. Which I've also Probably never seen. One episode. And I've also never seen any Predator movies, but I do know that you're supposed to cover yourself in mud. <laughs> that right? And then it can't see you because the heat signature is off? Something like that. I can barely remember. I haven't watched them since... Uh, I haven't watched the original... Ver you know, there was 
Predator and Predator Two. I haven't watched those since they originally came out. I don't think it's been it's been decades. There was a there was a minor reboot in there somewhere that I think I saw as well. I can't even remember. Okay, and then we are going to do an episode to to talk about um, Infinity War and all the Marvel hype that's going on right now. Do some fun speculation. <laughs> so that'll be a good episode. And um, to cap this off, I think we're going to talk for, um, you know, maybe uh, 45 seconds about uh, the new Jurassic World. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. That was the other yeah. thing that we were able to work in to our busy schedule. In fact, we should say exactly where at, we were at the price to work it this in. This is the price we paid. We went to a 10 p.m. showing of Fallen Kingdom the on a, on a Thursday night when... On Friday morning, we were going to have to get up at 4.30 in the a.m. to get on our flight to head out to Ticonderoga. Which, earlier I mentioned that I work in the middle of the night, so I, I deliver papers. So for me, that was 10 p.m. movie, get home at 1, a little bit before 1, leave at like 1.15 to go to my, uh, you know, my night shift job to get all these uh, grandmas and grandpas their papers. And then come back and pack for like a half hour and then go straight to the airport. <laughs> yes, I was able to grab a few hours sleep in between. And I also refuse to sleep on airplanes because I would rather look out the window. It's not worth it. It's not worth <laughs> sleeping no matter how much, I don't know how fast airplanes go, even though I almost went to flight school. I don't know. But I do know that it knocks me out. I slipped in a little nap. Or something, but there was one time where I asked the the flight attendant came over, and I was like, "I need some Dr Pepper," and then I was out to before she even came back with it. So I was in the strange circumstance where I was so tired at Ticonderoga that I was going to bed earlier while I was out on sort of a mini vacation. It was great. I went to bed at nine thirty, and I slept until seven thirty. It was amazing, <laughs> and I hadn't slept through the night in like a month. Anyways. Moving past our sleep schedules, we did see Jurassic World uh, the night it uh, came out. We did. And that's the podcast. <laughs> Good night, everybody. This is sad. I don't like... It's very rare that I am upset with a movie, which I think we have six years evidence of. <laughs> it takes a lot for me to be upset with a movie, and uh, I'm upset with Fallen Kingdom, and I think that it's fair. It, uh, the tone, well, on the one hand, I think they just made a decision to go for a decidedly different tone to try to shake well, things they, up. Well, they tried to make the decision. But I don't think they, they didn't seem like they really committed, first of all. And second of all, it's, in my humble opinion, a Jurassic Park movie should not be a horror movie that kids can't watch. Because Jurassic Park is very much, I think a kid should be able to watch Jurassic Park. Because that's part of it, I think. What do, you, I, what do you think? I don't know that I... Well, it depends on the age of the kid you're talking about. Uh, I mean, there is a certain... Uh, obviously, there's going to be a certain minimum level of scares and violence. But in the previous films, it seems that they were able to maintain a lighter tone even during some of the dinosaur-related violence. Whereas in this one, yeah. it just seemed really grim and dark. The violence the in Fallen film. Kingdom 
felt like more like The Walking Dead. There, and, and yeah, there were a couple of bits that were much more graphic. It's upsetting, and it's supposed to be upsetting. Yeah. Um, and what I want out of a Jurassic Park movie is not to be upset, it's to be like, it's to cry because dinosaurs are beautiful. Yeah. Should we really lay down a couple of spoilers? Technically, this is a family-friendly podcast. I mean, in theory, there's some things that I would not say if we're, I mean, you know. I think you're making it sound more than it is. Really? Because I was pretty, I was pretty disheveled. <laughs> but I think part of that was because I was expecting a cute Jurassic Park movie, and then I got this odd horror movie. Well, okay, quickly. There's essentially two parts to the movie. There's the part that opens up on the island, which is more similar to Jurassic uh, films in the past. So it's a lot of big action set pieces. You're running around with dinosaurs. Darker, but it's but it's close. Then we shift into the real grim, disturbing, more horror film uh, once the dinosaurs are back on the mainland and get loose in the mansion. The Indoraptor is the issue. Yeah, so there's a new dinosaur, a new created monster, uh, and, yeah, it just gets very dark and grim. But one of the weird... Which, there's, like, 80 shots of its, like, creepy hands just, like, reaching yeah. for stuff. And they throw in this weird twist. There's a little girl in the movie. Which I love her. Kids in Jurassic Park movies all the time. Yeah, but... that's, kind of an, that's kind of a motif in a, in a Jurassic Park movie. And this actress, she did a fantastic job. She was stunning. But then they throw in this twist that she's actually essentially a clone, a genetic replacement for uh, the daughter that a uh, one of the other characters had lost at some point in the past. Hammond's, uh, Hammond's partner. It didn't really go anywhere, and it was a weird sort of horror movie twist inside of this dinosaur movie that didn't really fit. She's crying half the time because her in, in the movie her grandfather is murdered. Yeah. In his bed, hooked up to his friggin' oxygen machines, because he's an old man. Then there's this weird scene late, very late in the film. The camera, like, pushes in. You get this extreme close-up of the little girl's eyes. And I was, like, half expecting them to, like, do a reptile blink. You know, it's like, what was that shot? I don't know. Here's the thing. They Well, let's let's go back. Um, because they, the director, J.A. Uh, Bayona, which I'm certain I butchered that, but... He, I'm certain, is a very talented horror director, and his previous work has all been more creepy stuff. Um, maybe don't hire a horror director for a movie <laughs> like Jurassic Park, because then you have these creepy scenes, and then they end, and Chris Pratt is sort of like, are you okay? I'm okay. Pratt's like checking in with the audience, and the audience is like, no. The classic Chris Pratt style. Charm. <laughs> Charm that we've come to adore. Uh, where he's always a little funny, always the little wink, always the little grin. It just landed very strangely. As much as I want to believe that he can, <laughs> there are some things that Chris Pratt smiling at you just can't fix. Well, and, and let's make clear that really our problem here is with the concept of doing a Jurassic Park movie as a horror film. A separate dinosaur horror film directed by J.A. Bayona. I'm certain it would have been fantastic because they wouldn't have had this weird tone shift. They wouldn't have been trying to make it sort of funny and also cute because there's this little girl and like she's the heroine and she wears Converse and she's tough. Because his direction, it's very effective 
at the horror tone. Yes. But it it ju- it did seem strange in this franchise. Really, at the end of the day, we're just confused why they made a decision to go in this direction. To finish up, the the premise of the movie is that the volcano is exploding on the island and all the dinosaurs are going to die. And should they let the dinosaurs die because there was already another, you know, they already busted out of Jurassic World, it was already a whole thing, they've brought them back to life, maybe they should be dead anyways, this whole, like, life, higher meaning type thing that Jurassic Park has played with before, whether or not um, Hammond made a mistake in bringing them back, etc. So that's kind of a bummer, because the point of Jurassic Park is, this is amazing, we've brought these beautiful creatures back, and then there's a scene when they're leaving the island where there's a poor Brachiosaurus who's gotten stuck on the island and it's like walking down the dock after them, seemingly knowing that it can't get off the island because this thing has left. And it's so depressing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of sad. But I don't like having to talk about a movie that I, I don't like, but I wanted to mention it, so there it is. That's all the time we have for this episode. Our next episode, starting our fifth season, will feature the second half of Melissa's interview as we discuss her work, especially the Nightshades Vampire series. Remember that Generations Geek is a part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from Castle Frankenstein. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Shiny.